Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chappell teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. All right, if you have a Bible today, you can go ahead and grab it, and uh, we're going to be in Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther, Esther chapter number one. Anybody excited to be in church today? Come on, I think we can do a little better than that. Anybody excited to be in church today? Anybody excited about starting a brand new series of messages today? Going to be in the book of Esther, and uh, you should have received a journal on your way in, and if you didn't get a journal, uh, we have plenty of them, so I'm sure that uh, the ushers could get you one, or you can get one after the service today, but... uh, Everybody should get a journal to uh, take some notes throughout this series. I love studying books of the Bible, and I'm excited about studying the book of Esther and finding God in the midst of this narrative. And today we're going to be in Esther chapter number one, and we'll start reading here in verse number one. The Bible says this, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast. Everybody say a feast. This was a, a party. And to all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in 104 score days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast to all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon the pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and the royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also, Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Hazarus on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, and Zethar, and Sarkis, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused. Everybody say refused. She said, absolutely not. To come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains, therefore was the king very wroth and his anger burned in him. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us, and God, thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. Lord, thank you for uh, the powerful worship that we've already had that has directed our hearts and minds uh, to you. And uh, God, I pray that for the next few minutes as we look to your word today that we can 
be filled with your spirit, Lord. I pray that your spirit would illuminate this text for us. I pray that you would reveal to us exactly what it is that you would have us uh, hear and see today. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone today that is hurting, that's going through a difficult season, God, that is questioning your uh, presence, God, I pray that they would uh, find you today, Lord, through your word. God, I pray that this time could be an encouragement for us. I pray that we could leave here differently because your word has changed us and spoken to us. And we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Last year, Katie and I, we went on a somewhat last-minute trip to Hawaii, and uh, we kind of uh, uh, had this last-minute trip where someone gave us uh, two free nights at a hotel, and we had a free plane ticket, and so we went on this short trip to Hawaii for two days. We literally left on a Monday. We got back on a Wednesday, and uh, it was a very quick trip, but we had a lot of fun, and I remember we got back uh, to the airport at LAX that night, late Wednesday night. And uh, uh, we went to the parking garage where we parked overnight, and I went to where uh, my car was parked, and I went, and I could not find my car anyway, anywhere. And so Katie and I were kind of looking all over the place, and I said, I know this is where I parked the car. And Katie said, no, uh, we were in a different garage. And it was one of those moments where I was, as a husband and a man, I knew that I was right. And uh, so I said, you know what? No, we did not park in another garage. This was the garage that we parked in. But just to kind of appease Katie, I said, okay, let's go look in some other uh, parking garages. And so we went, and uh, we were looking all over the place. We walked through three different parking garages for uh, over an hour and a half, and I could not find my car anywhere. And I knew the spot uh, where we had parked it, but I couldn't find it, so I was frustrated. And so we went to the security uh, office, and I, I concluded in my mind that our car was stolen. And uh, so we went to the security office, and I said, excuse me, I parked here on Monday, and I cannot find my car. I think it was stolen. And he said, uh, what's the make and model? And so we kind of gave him the information. He said, oh, no, here it is. Uh, your car was not stolen. Your car was towed because your tags were recently expired. And uh, so I was thinking, great, you know. Okay, my tags were expired. My car is towed. And he said, you need to go to, uh, you need to, go to the police station, the LAX police station, and they're going to give you further information. And so uh, we said, okay, where's that at? And so uh, uh, we walked around for another 45 minutes looking for the police station. We finally found it. We went into the police station, and we said, our, our car got towed because the tags were expired. And uh, he said, uh, he said you, can't, you can't get your car tonight. You have to prove that you have the registration. And so we said, okay, great. So we called an Uber, and we took an Uber all the way from LAX all the way back to Fontana. And the next uh, day we woke up, we went to get the car uh, registered and they said, actually, you need to get a smog check in, in order to get this registered. So we went, uh, we got the smog check. We went, uh, we got the registration. We went back to the police station. We verified our registration. Then he said, okay, let me show you where the tow company is. Then we finally found uh, the tow company. And after paying uh, the airport fees and the smog fees and the registration fees and the, and the towing company fees, we finally, after two days, found our car. And I was extremely frustrated because we spent two days in Hawaii, two days looking for uh, my car, and it was not worth it. And I was frustrated in that experience. How many of you have ever been frustrated because you couldn't find something? Anybody like that? You're frustrated because you can't find it. And uh, I think that the reality is this morning on a much grander scale, there's something within the heart of man that, that this ongoing uh, frustration, this ongoing uh, desire to find God and even amongst followers of Jesus, we know that there's a God and we believe in God, but so often when circumstances in our lives don't come uh, the way that we think that they should go, we wonder, where is God in this situation? Like, I know God exists. I believe God is real, but where is God when I lost my job? Where is God when I'm going through a difficult family struggle and situation? Where is God when there's these terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka? Where is God when there's shootings in San Diego this past week? And we look around at disasters and tragedies and we wonder, where is God? And it's because of this, many people 
have adopted a deistic worldview and a deistic way of thinking that says, you know what, I believe that God does exist. I believe that that God is real, but uh, he is not actively involved in the world today because if he were involved in the world today, then certainly things would look differently. And so, yes, there's a God, but uh, we can't uh, know him and he's not actively involved. And so there's this, this, this burning desire uh, to find God. Where is God in my situation? During World War II, there was a, a mechanic. His name was James Kilroy. And uh, he was a ship inspector. And uh, James Kilroy, it was his responsibility to inspect uh, ships and, uh, and uh, tanks before they went out uh, to war and to battle. And so uh, every time he would kind of uh, check off a ship or a tank, he would write on there. It was kind of his signature, his tag. He would write, Kilroy was here. And uh, James Kilroy, Kil- Kilroy was here. And so uh, he would write that on every ship and on every tank. And before you, before you knew it, uh, the, these ships and tanks were going all over the world, all over Europe uh, during world, world War II. And everyone was seeing this tag, Kilroy was here. And, he, and, and there was even a picture that kind of accompanied uh, this little graffiti with the man kind of looking over over the wall. Uh, Kilroy was here, and everybody was seeing this, and, and everyone was wondering, what, what is this? Kilroy is here all over uh, walls in, in Japan and, and in Germany and Europe, all over these places. Kilroy was here. Uh, there was a story that said even Hitler thought that, that, that Kilroy was some undercover spy and trying to figure out who is this Kilroy, and nobody really knew who Kilroy was, but Kilroy was everywhere. Can I tell you today that we can't always see it, we can't always sense it, we can't always understand it, maybe we don't always feel it, but can I tell you this morning that God is everywhere? That, that in the midst of our hurting, in the midst of our pain, that God is always active, he is always present, he is everywhere, we serve an omnipresent God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, uh, verse number 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, uh, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there. Everybody say, even there. Even there uh, shall thy hand lead me. Even when we're going through a difficult storm, even when we're going through the sea, we're going through a difficult situation, God says, even there I will be with you. Hey, even when your finances are struggling, God says, even there I will be with you. Hey, even when your family is struggling, God says, even there I will be with you. Hey, no matter what you're going through today, God is there. He is always working. He is always active. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse number 24, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Uh, that word sticks in the Hebrew, sticketh, is, is dabek, and it means to cling to, to cling to, that God is, 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 is always with us. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and a lot of times we think that God's presence is contingent upon our obedience, like when I'm doing good, God's going to be with me. If I'm going to go and serve, God's going to be with me. If I go and invite a friend to church, God will be with me. And if I'm serving the Lord, God will be with me. But can I tell you today that God's presence is not contingent upon our obedience? God is always with us, even when we're doubting, even when we're discouraged, even when we are depressed, even there, God is with us. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And so we can't always see it. We can't always sense it or feel it. But God is always there. He is always Working. The Bible tells us this in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? And so this truth is the remarkable motif of the book of Esther this morning, that, that we can't always see God, but he is always there. He is always working behind the scenes, and sometimes that's frustrating because we're trying to find God in our situation. But, but if we take a step back, we can see that God is always in control. He is always sovereign, working behind the scenes.
Matthew Henry, he's a commentator. He talks about uh, the book of Esther, and he says this, but though the name of God be not in it, uh, Esther, the, the name God is not mentioned anywhere uh, in the chapters, in the, in the letters of, uh, of uh, Esther, but though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is directing many minute events uh, for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. And so God is working constantly behind the scenes. And before we jump into chapter number one and uh, break apart these verses and try to pull some principles that can be helpful uh, for us this morning, I thought it would be good to uh, have a little bit of context of where we are uh, in the biblical narrative. Would that be okay this morning if we kind of had a little bit of context? And so to do that, I thought, man, we need to remember this. We didn't know this. So I thought we need to have some flashcards. Okay. How many of you are familiar with some flashcards? Okay. And so my lovely wife, Katie, is going to, let's give it up for Katie this morning. All right, my lovely assistant today. And uh, so, so a little bit of context, kind of where we are in the biblical narrative. First, uh, we have to understand that uh, there was a civil war in Israel. The nation was divided. Uh, they were at war against each other, the north in the south, Judah and uh, Israel, they are uh, worshiping false idols. They're, they're at battle and war against each other. And because they're worshiping false idols and because they had an unrepentant heart, God said, okay, um, I'm going to allow you to go into Babylonian captivity. And so uh, what happens next is they are taken into this Babylonian captivity for about 70 years. If you read the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel is all about this Babylonian captivity. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's all during the Babylonian uh, reign, the Babylonian captivity. And so even in the midst of this uh, Babylonian captivity, God still uh, loved Israel. God still loved his people. And he said, I I'm going to promise deliverance. I'm going to promise deliverance that, that one day you're going to go back to Jerusalem. You're going to go back to Zion. In fact, uh, the Bible tells us this in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse number 12. Go and proclaim these words uh, toward the north and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. I only acknowledge thine iniquity. God was saying, I want you to learn through this. I want you to acknowledge your sin, your wickedness. And towards the end, Verse number 14, he says this, and I will bring you to Zion. And so even when they had forsaken God, God had not forsaken them. Can I tell you this morning that even when you turn your back on God, God will not turn his back on you. Even when we make mistakes and when we messed up, God says, I still love you. I want to bring you back to the place of blessing. I want to bring you back to the place of provision. And so God promised uh, deliverance even when they were in Babylonian captivity. And then there arose a leader. Uh, his name was uh, Cyrus the Great. Uh, Cyrus the Great uh, was a very powerful leader. He was a good king. And uh, he decided, I want to take over the world. And so what he decided to do was to go and attack Babylon and invade Babylon. And so he goes in and uh, he invades Babylon. He wins. He takes over. And now he's the most powerful man in the world. When he becomes king and when he takes over Babylon, he decides to let God's people go. And so Cyrus the Great then uh, frees the Israelites. He says, you are now free to go. This all takes place in Ezra chapter number one, that he declares this decree uh, that you can now go back to Zion. You can now uh, go back to Jerusalem. By the way, uh, this is all historically very verified a few several about a hundred years ago they found the cyrus cylinder anybody ever seen the cyrus cylinder it's on display in the british museum and uh, the, the, it documents some of these same historical events that cyrus says okay you can now go back to jerusalem and so uh, the israelites now are making this journey back to jerusalem they are now free they're no longer in captivity first uh, a man named zerubbabel he went zerubbabel was responsible for rebuilding the temple it took him about 20 years then a man named ezra went ezra went and he was responsible for bringing spiritual reform to the people he brought revival to the people a few years later after the book of esther nehemiah would go nehemiah would go back and he he would be responsible for building uh, the walls around uh, the temple. But it's in the middle of this, in the middle of this uh, uh, journey back to Jerusalem, that we find 
the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is about a small remnant of Jews, some remaining Jews that did not make the journey back to Zion, that did not make the journey back to Jerusalem, but in fact stayed in Persia, uh, where, uh, where Cyrus uh, the Great was king. And you say, well, why did they stay in Persia? Why didn't they go back? Well, many were, were old at this time, and they did not want to make this uh, journey back. They were too old to travel. Many were too young. They had young children. They did not want to make the journey back. And, 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 and frankly, perhaps many people just stayed because they were com comfortable in Persia. They, that's what they were used to. That's what they knew. They didn't really see a need to go back to uh, Jerusalem. And so there's this small remnant, this small remaining group of Jews that are staying in Persia. And this is the context and the scene of the book of Esther. And so that brings us up to speed. Let's give it up for Katie and our flashcards this morning. And it's with this small remnant of Jews in Persia that we are going to see God at work. And it's going to seem like, where is God? And he's absent. He's not working. But we're going to see him begin to unfold events. And we're going to see his sovereign hand all over these pages and these verses in Esther chapter number one. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we uh, jump into verse number one in chapter number one, I'd like to give us four principles to remember when we can't seem to see God. Uh, four principles to remember when we can't seem to see God. If you're ready this morning, would you say amen? Number one, short-term pleasure will never fill a long-term void. Short-term pleasure will never fill a long-term void. Notice verse number one. It says this, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 Provinces, And so we're introduced to uh, the king of Persia, Ahasuerus. That was his Hebrew name. His Greek name was Xerxes. This is the famous historical Xerxes the Great. And uh, uh, this was the most powerful man in the world. Uh, he was in charge of over 127 uh, provinces. Uh, this was essentially the known world at this time. He's a very powerful man, very powerful king. Uh, the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter number 11, verse number 2 says, And now uh, will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up uh, all against the realm of Grisha. And so this was a prophecy uh, from the book of Daniel regarding this king, Xerxes, regarding Ahasuerus, this very wealthy uh, king of Persia. Notice verse number two. That in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne, everybody say the throne, of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, or Susa, uh, the palace. And so uh, Xerxes is sitting on his throne. He's enjoying his winter palace. This is not even his primary palace. And you know that you have a lot of money. You know that you're rich when you have a backup palace, you know, just to kind of go to uh, on vacation. He's sitting on his throne, and uh, uh, he is enjoying his reign. There's been some archaeological discoveries uh, from uh, Shushan, from Susa, uh, and they found some inscriptions on some walls and some writings that, uh, that Xerxes said that he was the king of all all of the earth, that he was the great king. In fact, one inscription said that he was the king of kings. And see, here was Xerxes' problem. He thought that he was God. Uh, he thought that he was the king of his own life. He was the king of his destiny. But can I just remind you this morning that the Bible is all about one king. The Bible is all about one man. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the only king forever. And he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Ahasuerus Xerxes, he thought that he was the king of his own destiny, and he was enjoying his reign, but uh, it was going to come uh, uh, quickly to an end. And so we see uh, that he is on his throne in Shushan the palace. Notice verse number three. 
In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all the princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and four score days. And so what Xerxes does is he throws a party. Now, this was not a one-day party. This was not a one-week party. This was not even a one-month party. This was a sixth uh, six-month party, okay? And so this lasted a long time. He said, I'm going to throw a party, and this is going to be the party to end all parties. And he's showing off his wealth. He's showing off his riches of his kingdom. And uh, for six months, it took him six months to show off all of his wealth. Now, uh, to show off my wealth, it would take about six minutes. But he said, uh, for six months, I'm going to show off my wealth. We're going to have a great time. We're going to live it up. Uh, we're going we're gonna to party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to drink. We're going to eat. This is going to be a great time. Now, why did he throw this grand party for six months? months. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds exhausting uh, because I have one party. I have one Easter egg launch, and I'm very tired after that. And uh, to have a six-month party, and uh, uh, that would be exhausting, but this is what he's doing. Now, why did he throw such a grand party? Why did he uh, uh, bring this to such a great expense? And uh, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that uh, uh, Xerxes was getting ready to uh, invade uh, uh, Greece, and he wanted to reduce the world into uh, one empire. And so he's gathering all of his princes, and he's gathering all of his leaders to kind of butter them up and to be kind to them to say, hey, uh, we're about to go into battle to take over uh, the known world. And so uh, he gives them the best food in the world. He gives them the best drinks in the world. He gives them unlimited access to a wicked harem uh, filled with uh, uh, women uh, that they could just take at their pleasure. And so he was buttering them up and, and he was being uh, overly kind to them for the purpose of getting something back to them. By the way, uh, the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 23, verse number one, when thou sittest to eat with the ruler, consider diligently what is before thee and put a knife to thy throat. If thou be a man given to appetite, everybody say appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Hey, be very careful that you don't fall uh, susceptible to flattery. Because just because someone is good to you does not mean that they are good for you. And here Xerxes is saying, hey, uh, I need your help. I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really kind to you. Let's do this. But we need to have the discernment to surround ourselves with the right kind of influences, the right kind uh, of people. And so uh, he's throwing this great big party. Notice verse number five. It says, and when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace. And so what happens after that six-month party, you know, he's, he doesn't say, let's take a break, let's take a rest. What would you want to do after a six-month long party? He says, you know what, let's throw another party. And so he gets another party going. And this time, he does not make the party smaller, he makes the party bigger. He says, for seven days, let's invite everyone from Shushan, let's invite everyone from Susa to come to this party that were present in Shushan the palace palace, both great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple to silver, rings and pillars and marble. Uh, the beds were made of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble, this, this beautiful mosaic. You could just, uh, uh, the, the Bible here is giving us this description of how grand, how, how expensive, how, how, how uh, uh, magnificent this would have been. Notice the next verse. And then they gave uh, them drink in the vessels of gold, uh, the vessels being diverse one from another. This was like everyone's little party gift. Hey, you come to this uh, great big party, here's a vessel of gold. And all of them were unique to themselves, and, and uh, they were all different. They were not the same. And, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king, and the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house, watch this, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. And this is what it all boils down to. The king said, do whatever you want. 
Whatever feels right in your eyes, do it. Whatever's pleasurable for you, just go ahead and do it. Hey, hey, whatever you want to do, whatever makes you feel good, that's what you should do. That's what I'm going to do. That's what you should do. And we see that Xerxes, he had power and he had control over cities, but he did not have control over his character. He had power and control over his provinces, but he could not harness his passions. And there are many people today that are, are, are very good when it comes to their profession, and they can control their profession, but they cannot harness their passions. And they are great when it comes to uh, their job and when it comes to their career and successful, but they cannot uh, control their home. They cannot control their own appetite. And here was Xerxes. He was king of the world, but he couldn't control his own desires. He couldn't control his own lust. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 32, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Can I just remind you today? What does it matter how successful you are? What does it matter how much money is in your bank account if your soul is empty? What does it matter how successful you can be in a career if your home is falling apart, if, if your inner soul is at, as, as at turmoil and struggle? And so here is Xerxes. He's king of the world, but he couldn't control his appetite. He couldn't control his pleasures. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Many people today have a void in their lives. There's an emptiness in their lives, and they're trying desperately to fill that void, to fill that emptiness with sex, with alcohol, with pleasures, uh, with relationships, and they're, with money, with success. They're trying to fill that void, but can I just remind you that uh, short-term pleasure will never fill a long-term void. There's a void in our hearts that only God can fill, that only Jesus can fill. And so they are trying to uh, live it up and experience this pleasure. The Bible says in Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. There are many people today that that is their God, their, their appetite, their, their appetite for lust and, and, for, and for consuming things. And I just want more and more and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. But short-term pleasure will never fill a long-term void. There, there's a, a popular acronym on texting and on social media. Uh, it's called FOMO. How many of you are familiar with FOMO? F-O-M-O. It's the fear of missing out, right? And uh, we all have that, that, that FOMO sometimes, right? We have the fear of missing out. I don't want to miss out on something fun. I don't want to miss out on a, on a great thing or if people are going to have a good time, make memories. I don't, I don't want to miss out. We have that fear of missing out. But there's another acronym that is becoming increasingly popular that I've seen recently, and that is not FOMO, but JOMO, J-O-M-O. And it's not the fear of missing out, but it's actually the joy of missing out. And uh, there are some things that you can find joy in not participating in. And I believe today that there needs to be some more followers of Jesus that have the joy of missing out, that have that JOMO that says, hey, I don't need everything that the world has to offer. I don't need the pleasures that the world has to offer. Just give me Jesus. All I need is Jesus. In Christ, that is enough. And so here we see these unrestricted pleasures, passions that are going out of control. Psalm 107 verse number 9 says that he satisfies the longing soul and fill the hungry soul with goodness. See, a uh, short-term pleasure will never fill a long-term void. Uh, and so we see uh, this indulgence. We see that uh, they were uh, just living it up, partying. But then it takes uh, a next uh, step. It goes, it goes a little bit further. And we see impurity in verse number 9. If you're still with me, would you say amen? amen. Also, Vashti the queen made a feast. 
And so here we have the third party that's going on in the book of Esther. A lot of parties in the book of Esther, as we're going to see as we study, uh, many feasts, many banquets. We have the first six-month party. We have the second seven-day party, the after party. And meanwhile, the queen, Vashti, she's throwing her own party. And she made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk. Uh, him and all of his buddies were drunk. He commanded uh, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, Sarkis, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king. He, he, he says, I need you guys to come here and do me a favor. Next verse. To bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. And so now this party has escalated to a whole new level. And now the king, Xerxes, is completely drunk. And he says, I've got a great idea. And he's with all of his buddies. And he says, hey, let's bring in Vashti. Let's bring in the queen. She's beautiful. And we can all just look on, look on my wife. And we can uh, uh, lust after her. And so this, this scene takes a very uh, uh, immoral turn. And we see this impurity. And now they want to lust after his wife. And he wants to bring uh, her forward to uh, show her off to all of his buddies. I want to remind you that, that God takes sexual immorality very seriously. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The word sanctification means set apart. It means to, uh, uh, it's a process of becoming more like Jesus, that you should abstain from fornication. The word fornication is any sexual sin outside the context of marriage, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. And so what they do is they say, let's bring Vashti forward, and, and this will be great. This is going to uh, take the party to a whole new level. Let's do this. And we look at all of this wickedness, and we see everything that's going on, and we can ask the question, where is God? So much wickedness, sexual immorality, there's abuse, drunkenness, pride, arrogance. The, the whole scene is out of control. Where, where is God? The Bible tells us this in Acts chapter 17, verse number 30. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. He overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Can I just remind you today that God is a patient God. He, he is long-suffering. He is gentle. And he will allow us to, uh, to get away with some things. But he is always in control. He is patient. He is always waiting for us to come back to him. There's always an opportunity to come back to him. And even though he is patient, uh, the, his arms are always wide open saying, hey, come back to me. And, and I will be here to receive you. And so there is this pleasure. This party is out of control. And we see short-term pleasure will never fill a long term void. Here's the second principle that we can learn this morning. Number two, courage is often necessary to correct course. Short-term pleasure will never fill a long-term void, but secondly, we learn that courage is often necessary to correct course. Notice verse number 12, if you would. But the queen Vashti refused. Everybody say refused. She refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore, uh, was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. And so Vashti, the queen, says, no, I'm not going to do that. And the first time in six months, the king did not get what he wanted. And so he becomes very angry. And Vashti here demonstrate, demonstrates this great courage. She says, you know what, I'm not going to do this. This is not right. Vashti was not even a, a worshiper of the one true God, uh, but she knew the difference between right and wrong. And she said, this is not a, a good thing. I'm not going to uh, subject myself to do something like this. And so she refused and it took great courage for her to do so. In fact, Adam Clark, one commentator says this, her contempt of worldly grandeur 
when brought in competition with what every modest woman, uh, woman holds dear and sacred is worthy of observation. She well knew that this act of disobedience would cost her her crown, if not her life also. But she was uh, regardless of both as she conceived her, her virtue and honor were at stake. And so she makes this courageous decision. Okay, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do this. And so the king gets really upset and, and uh, he calls in some advisors, and he's trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? Because we can't have this kind of insubordination here. And so uh, notice verse number 15. He calls his, his advisors in, and he says, What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Because she hath, hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus uh, by the chamberlains. And he's saying, what are we going to do? We can't accept this. We can't have this. Someone uh, refusing an order from me like this. Uh, Warren Wearsby, he said this. Her response was a, a, a threefold offense on her part. She was, in this culture, a woman challenging the authority of a man. She was a wife disobeying the orders of her husband and a subject defying the, command, defying the commands of a king. And so this was a, 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 a triple offense on, on the part of Queen Vashti. But it's through this interaction that I believe that we can be reminded of some biblical principles on marriage. Because uh, the Bible has much to say about the topic of marriage. And as husbands, we learn a negative example from Ahasuerus. And, and wives, we learn a positive example from Vashti. And as husbands, we know that the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 that we are to love our wives and we are to love our wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And that's a high love. And so we are not to uh, parade our wives out. We are to protect them. Perfect love casts out fear. And so uh, Hazra should have never put his wife in this position to come and, and, and to bring her before all of his drunken buddies and to have a good time. Uh, he should have never done that because perfect love uh, casts out fear. But as wives, we know the Bible says in Colossians 3.18, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Watch this, though. As it is fit in the Lord as it is fit in the Lord. And so I've said it before, there's a difference between submission and subjugation. And so Ahasuerus should have never put her in this position. And she was standing for what was right. And she said, I'm not going to give in to this evil request. And I know that I'm supposed to be submissive, but this is taking it too far. And so we see uh, this example and we see that they were worried about this. What are we going to do? So he calls in uh, these counselors and notice what happens in verse number 16. And Mamukin answered before the king. Mamukin was kind of like the, the main advisor. He was kind of like the main spokesperson, the main counselor. And uh, he answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And he says, you know what? We're not only worried about her insubordination, we're also worried about her influence. Because the fact that she stood up to you, that might mean other people might stand up to you. And that might mean other ladies might stand up to their husbands. And oh my goodness, oh, look at what, what is going to happen. And so they were worried about the influence of the decision that Vashti uh, made. If you're tracking with me so far, would you say amen? And so now they're worried not only about insubordination, but also they're worried about influence. And, and uh, this decision from Vashti really sets forth the entire rest of the narrative of the book of Esther. This one decision does have influence. Mamukin was right about one thing. One decision could have big ramifications, and there was about to be a whole lot of events that took place because of this one decision. Never underestimate the power of one godly decision. Never underestimate the power of one a decision for Christ. Hey, you might be in a situation today where you are surrounded by evil. You might be in a situation at work or at home where you are requested to do, to do things that are wrong. You might be surrounded by wickedness, surrounded by evil influences, but can I encourage you today that God can give you the courage to stand up for what is right, and God can give you the boldness and the confidence to go in and do not what man has to say, but what God has to say. The Bible says in Joshua 1, 9, have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And so uh, we can have this kind of courage today. 
If you go to New York City, you'd find a sculpture at the uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it's a sculpture of John uh, Chrysostom, and he was an early church leader and a powerful speaker, powerful preacher, and uh, he was a very bold man. And uh, because of his message, because of his preaching, he was exiled from the Roman Empire, and they were, they were sending him away, uh, never to return again. And when he learned about his fate, uh, Chrysostom, he responded by saying this, uh, responding to uh, th- this being exiled. He said, what can I fear? Will it be death? But you know, that Christ is my life, and that I shall gain uh, by death. Will it be exile? But the earth and all, that, uh, uh, all its fullness is the Lord's will be loss of wealth, but we brought nothing into the world and can carry nothing out. Thus all the terrors of the world are contemptible in my eyes, and I smile uh, at all its good things. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, death I do not shrink from. And here was a man that said, you know what? I don't care what the world does to me. I don't care what other people have to say. I'm going to live for Jesus because a life in Jesus is always a better life than anything else possible. And so he had this great kind of courage and Vashti was not even a true follower of God. She did not worship the one true God, but she knew what was right, and she stood up for what was right, and it took courage. And if she didn't even know the one true Lord, how much more today should we as followers of Jesus that have access to God's word, that have the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit, how much more should we stand up for what's right in this in this day and age and go into the night and say, I'm going to stand up for biblical values. I'm going to stand up for biblical truth and do what God wants me to do. And so sometimes courage is necessary to a correct course. And this brings us to our third principle this morning, number three. Not all counsel is created equal. Not all counsel is created equal. If you're with me, would you say amen? amen. Notice verse number 19. Verse number 19 says this, for if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him and let it be written among the laws of the Medes and, and Persians Uh, of the Persians and the Medes, that it uh, be not altered, that Vashti come no more before uh, King Ahasuerus. And this is uh, somewhat humorous to me because uh, what was the one thing that Vashti did not want to do? Go before King Ahasuerus. And they're like, all right, here's her punishment. Here's what we're going to have her do. She can't go before King Ahasuerus. And Vashti's like, all right, that's what I wanted in the first place. And so uh, that was her punishment. I, I, I can't go before King Ahasuerus. They, they banished her. They banned her and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And so uh, they said, here's her punishment. We're going to ban her. We're going to exile her. She's going to, uh, she's going to be gone. Now, notice verse number 20. And when the king's decree, which he shall make, uh, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memukin. And so uh, what happens here in these verses is they say, okay, uh, we're going to listen to that counsel, and uh, we're going to take that advice, and uh, we're going we're gonna to set this rule into place where uh, no one can disregard an order uh, from a man like this, and, and, no, and no one can uh, question a husband like this. And by the way, this goes contrary to God's design for marriage in Genesis chapter 2, because in Genesis chapter number 2, the wife is supposed to be the, the helper, the friend, and you can't be the helper and friend if you have no say in the matter. And so uh, this went uh, contrary to God's design of marriage. And so they're giving this advice, and it's bad advice. How many of you have ever gotten bad advice before? Can I see your hands? How many of you have ever gotten some good advice? Gotten some, I got some good advice recently. We had some friends tell us that you need to go and try Tacos Unicos in Fontana, okay? And if you haven't tried Tacos Unicos, the carne asada fries is where it's at. That's some good advice. Can I get, some, can I get an amen for carne asada fries this morning? That was good advice. Here we see some bad advice. Not all counsel is created equal. Just because you get counsel doesn't mean it's the right counsel. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, 
purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. And so the Bible tells us we need to go to a multitude of counselors. But sometimes when we're going through a disappointing season in life, when we're wondering, where is God in my situation? Or we're frustrated, we're experiencing depression or disappointment. We'll go and get counsel from all the wrong places. And we'll say, you know, I'm going to get counsel, but we go to someone else who's, who's just as bitter as I am. We go to someone else that, that doesn't have biblical values, that doesn't have biblical wisdom, and we just go to the wrong places to receive counsel. The Bible tells us in Psalm 1, verse number 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And so that tells us that there's not, uh, all counsel is not created equal. Sometimes there is counsel of the ungodly. Uh, so blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight... His joy is in the law of the Lord. And see, there is joy in following the biblical values and the biblical principles of the word of God. There's joy in that. There's joy in following uh, biblical counsel. And so uh, not all counsel is created equal. Your counsel is only as strong as your source. And so I want to encourage you today when you're going through a difficult season, when you're wondering, where's God in my situation? Make sure that you get counsel, but make sure that it's wise counsel. Make sure that it's biblical counsel uh, backed by the word of God. And so uh, there, there's this uh, counsel that uh, King Xerxes says, okay, that's what we're going to do. Now notice the last verse, verse 22. For he sent uh, letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every uh, people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the law, uh, or to the language of every people. So what happens? They made it a law. They put it into writing. And uh, they said, this is now the law uh, that every people, uh, that, that uh, every man should bear rule in his own house. The women don't have a say. Now this was the law. But can I tell you that just because something is permissible legally does not mean that it is permissible biblically. In fact, some things that are right in the eyes of the government are actually reprehensible in the eyes of the Lord. Just because the government says that it's not wrong for the murder of the unborn, we still believe that that is called a sin. You know, in the government's eyes, adultery is not against the law, but that is a sin. Just because the government says that something is permissible does not mean that the Lord would agree with that thing. And so this was now the law, but that does not mean that uh, that is uh, the correct thing. And when it comes to those things, remember that the Bible tells us that we ought to obey God rather than man. And so he is our final authority. And so uh, here we have this uh, situation and nothing really seems like good news. I don't know if you're picking up on this, but there's just parties and wickedness, and, and now they're making these laws, and now Vashti's just banished, and now uh, things are not looking good. But I want to I bring us to a final point this morning, and hopefully this will help us tie it all together. Number four, a vacancy is an opportunity for victory. A vacancy is an opportunity for victory. Vashti, the queen, has been banished. This doesn't seem fair. It was the one person who seemed to have a moral compass in her life. Now she's gone. The one person that said, I'm going to stand up for right. Now she's banished for doing a good thing. And what we see is now there is a vacancy in the spot of the queen. There's an empty spot. But it was this vacancy that opened the door for Esther to come into the scene. Simply put, Exit Vashti, enter Esther. See, this vacancy was actually an opportunity for God to usher in a victory. 
that this vacancy was actually God's way of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm starting to work in this situation. I'm going to do something in this scene. In fact, go back to verse number 19, and, and the Bible tells it like this. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, uh, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before the king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate, watch this, unto another that is better than she. I wonder who that's about. That is about Esther. See, God knew something better is coming. Yeah, there's a vacancy, but something better is coming. Yes, there's a vacancy, but I'm about to bring a victory because I'm going to bring Esther in to be queen. And this morning, you might have a vacancy in your heart. There might be a vacancy in your relationship. There might be a vacancy when it comes to your family. There might be a vacancy when it comes to your bank account. Hello. Uh, there might be a vacancy in your life, but can I just remind you and encourage you that God can use a vacancy to bring in a victory, that God can take a season of emptiness to bring about his eternal purpose, there can be a great victory through vacancy. This doesn't look like a good scene. It looks like Vashti's been banished, and now there's just this emptiness. Now there's just this vacancy, but God says, I'm starting to work in a powerful way. Where there is a vacancy, there is an opportunity for God to bring in victory. Something better is coming. Another that is better than she. See, God always has a better plan. He always has a better purpose. We don't always see it. We can't always find it. But God is always working. He has a better plan. He has good thoughts for us. He has good plans for us. Uh, thoughts not to harm us, but to prosper us. He, he, he loves us. He has good things in store for us. God is always working. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse number 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Sometimes we think that uh, political leaders are in control and that governments are in control and kings are in control, but ultimately they are moving at the hand of God. God is the final authority. Today, if you've never personally had a relationship with Jesus, there is an emptiness in your heart. There's a vacancy that only God can fill. In the New Testament, there was a woman that was uh, going to a well to get water. We read about her in John chapter number four. She showed up to the well with an empty bucket, but ultimately she showed up, we know, with an empty heart. She was searching. She had tried all kinds of things to fill that vacancy that was in her life. She had tried uh, sexual pleasure. She had five husbands. She had tried all kinds of things, but it always left her feeling empty. And in John chapter 4, verse number 9, it says this, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, she's talking to Jesus, uh, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. See, Jesus said, I have something that will fill that void in your soul. I have something that will uh, last forever. I have living water. You're going to temporary uh, wells for satisfaction. You're, going, you're trying to fill your bucket. You're trying to fill your life with temporary things, but I can give you eternal satisfaction, eternal fulfillment. And then in verse number uh, 25, he says this, uh, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Watch this. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. You see, you know what the woman was really searching for? It wasn't water. It wasn't a relationship. What she was really searching for was God. She said, I know that when Messiah is coming, he will be the Christ. What she was searching for was God. Here was her question. Where is God? That was her question. Where is God? 
I know that when Messiah is coming, and he's going to answer these questions for me. He's going he's to uh, tell me the answers that I'm looking for. Where is God? And you know what Jesus' response to that question, where is God? He said, I'm right here. He said, you're looking at him. The one that's talking to you, I am he. Can I tell you this morning that if you are searching for God today, if there's an absence in your heart, if there's a void in your heart, look no further than the person of Jesus. Because Jesus alone can fill that void in your heart. Where is God? He is found in the person of Jesus. And those of you that are followers of Jesus today, can I tell you that if there's a vacancy in your heart, if there's a vacancy in your life, God can bring ultimate victory through that season of emptiness. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.